Good afternoon. I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, soccer, elephant heat, and snowballs. In addition, we'll be joined by Steve Schneider and Carl McDaniel, who will talk about wisdom for a living planet. Also, we'll find out why urine is yellow. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. It's another fine day in uh, February, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite months of the year. It's one of my 12 favorite months of the year, really. <laughs> are we coming up for our anniversary pretty soon yet? It's, I guess, the end of the month soon. So uh, that'll be our five-year anniversary, I believe. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. I can't believe we made it this long, and the FCC hasn't pulled us off the air yet. <laughs> Especially after the Janet Jackson incident, you know, we, we were treading on hot water with that one. Here's a question for you. I guess it's uh, nearing Valentine's, right? Yes, it is. I mean, in a couple weeks. Do you ever go into the must phase? The must phase? Yes. Uh, that's, I guess, during development where I have to have something? Uh, no, it's M-U-S-T-H. Um, I guess it's the male analog of uh, going to heat. I think I go through that daily. <laughs> oh. It turns out for elephants, they, they go through this regular annual cycle. And uh, something interesting has been uh, discovered about the, uh, the chemis- chemicals that they emit in this process. Uh, and uh, I imagine it's some sort of pheromone that they're emitting to uh, attract females, right? Right. But the thing is, the pheromones uh, change as they age. And so these molecules, which are, um, they're simple molecules, which are quite similar to uh, uh, certain sugars, sugar-like molecules. It turns out the ratio, their chiral ratio changes as they age. So there's an R-frontalin and L-frontalin. And the difference between these molecules is their mirror images. Mm-hmm geometric mirror images of each other as they age the ratio of them changes from when they're teens to when they're much older i see and i imagine one of them is more potent or biologically active than the other uh presumably so okay so does it go from the one that's more biologically active to the one that's less or how does it proceed as the elephants mature, the ratios of the two actually become more or less uh, equivalent. While uh, when they're young, only one of them is in like is near pure form. Mm. What's still not known is how these uh, molecules interact with the receptor proteins with the uh, of the females. So that's the next step in the uh, mystery. Uh, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, you know, just send them a Valentine's Day card filled with <laughs> that musk uh, of the two different kinds, and we can find out <laughs> which one works better. Hallmark has a brand new product. Wasn't Valentine's a Hallmark's uh, invention? I, I think it was. It's coming up, I guess, with their next holiday, which will be uh, Happy Day or something. <laughs> All right, and this was reported in a recent edition of Nature.
So do you have a green thumb? Well, I used to grow stuff, but uh, I don't know, they just died out. <laughs> Much like most things on the planet, I guess. <laughs> well, it turns out that uh, people who are trying to conserve, I guess, the amount of you know, forested land mm-hmm. have been you know, reforesting a lot of areas by planting trees. Right. And the idea is that this is going to suck up a lot of the excess CO2 in the atmosphere. But I guess apparently the problem is that when you actually replant all these forests, people don't take into account the amount of water that these trees need to grow. And also the fact that after these trees are growing, the salt, the, the soil becomes much more salty. Um, so this actually adds a bit of complication to people who actually want to use reforestation as a means for uh, carbon, carbon. carbon recycling. So uh, I guess um, the national forest industry still is not contributing <laughs> to uh, lowering CO2 emissions, huh? Uh, well, I, I think uh, on the net, yeah, by, <laughs> by uh, deforesting, it's probably not a good thing. I guess their claim to the environment is that there are more trees now than there were in 1940 or something, <laughs> which there's some merit, but it's probably not living up to the full potential of what they claim. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, but this is actually uh, uh, a study that was done by Robert Jackson of Duke University in uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh-huh. And he's basically saying that um, on average, apparently, plantations cut local stream flows by about 50% or so. Right. So which is a huge amount. And uh, he's saying this is sort of a key factor that policymakers need to keep in mind when they're actually setting policies hmm. for, uh, you know, whether what how they should be uh, planting in various regions and such. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, more complications too. <laughs> our global environment. Ah, not so simple. (laughs) Few things ever are. But I guess if anyone's interested in this, they can take a look in the recent edition of Science. So you've broken any world records lately, Charles? I think for... uh most masochistic graduate school career. <laughs> <laughs> How about the biggest snowball in the world? Uh, I, I haven't even come close to that one now. No? Okay, so some chemists are actually planning that right now. Uh, to build the largest snowball in the world? Yes. What's the current record? Uh, the current record is um, was established in Switzerland in 2003. In order to break this new record, they would need at least 2,500 participants. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is actually taking place in New York, so if any listeners out there are interested, they should keep a guy out on uh, Jonathan Rosen. Okay. Who's a chemist in Brooklyn, and they're trying to plan uh, to break the record over at Prospect Park over there. He's trying to enlist as many people as possible, and uh, actually he's also uh, organizing this event through Craigslist, so uh, people should uh, uh, go through there if they want to participate. Is there a special category on Craigslist for snowball making? I guess it's under events. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not uh, mail Milan Street mail for, <laughs> for snowball uh, <laughs> extravaganza. Huh? All right, well, that's that's really cool. Does he have a special technique that he wants to employ that uh, nobody else has, or it's just sheer brute force kind of thing? <laughs> it looks like a brute force thing. You know, more people, a uh, bigger snowball. All right, well, you know, why why go for an elegant solution when you can go for the uh, brute force solution? Cool. So do they, does he have in mind when he wants to try and do this? Well, I mean, of course, when it's still snowing. But, mm, sure. uh, that, hel- that helps, I think, <laughs> for building a snowball. But uh, if you just check uh, regularly on Craigslist, uh, you should probably see something over there. Okay, and finally, do you like a good sports matchup? Play ping pong sometimes. That's about it. Just like Forrest Gump. Ah, yes. Could you take Forrest Gump down? I don't know. I think he would beat me in a second. (laughs) So you'd be the underdog there, huh? Uh, Well, it turns out that apparently underdogs are uh, much more favored in soccer than they are in uh, any of the American sports. Really? So, in fact, they are. So actually, which leads a lot of researchers to suggest that, in fact, 
uh, soccer, English soccer is much more exciting to watch than any American sport. So is this, uh, is there a theory behind why the underdogs are so favored? Uh, so the idea is that basically um, if teams are very evenly matched in any uh, particular league, right? Right. Then some population, of course, is going to be an underdog uh, mathematically. Yes. But in fact, they're all probably equally matched, so any one of them could win at a time. Uh-huh. And the more lopsided a league gets, where actually a lot of concentration of better players are, uh-huh. then the games become much less interesting because the stronger team will always much more likely win. I see. And that appears to be the case, they say, in uh, American basketball, for instance, mm-hmm. and even American football, where uh, the uh, favor team usually wins. I guess it's a good thing we don't have a, a country full of Arnold Schwarzeneggers <laughs> then, huh? <laughs> I think that's sort of a good thing generally. Although, uh, if Schwarzenegger has his way, who knows, California might <laughs> be renamed... California. California. (laughs) So very fascinating work, and you have it on good authority from scientists at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, led by Eli Ben-Naim, that in fact English soccer is much more exciting to watch than any American sport. And uh, this was actually published in a recent edition of the ArcSiv. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Stay tuned. Professor Stephen Schneider and Carl McDaniel joins us to talk about some wisdom for a living planet. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. It was only recently that NASA confirmed that 2005 is the warmest year on record. Yet, while there is mounting evidence that environmental sustainability cannot be maintained under current business-as-usual conditions, there are also detractors casting doubt over global warming and its significance. There is an urgent need for the educated to communicate these concerns to the public. Well, joining us today are two special guests, Professor Carl McDaniel, author of Wisdom for a Livable Planet and Professor of Biology, and also Professor Stephen Schneider, Global Climatologist and Professor at Stanford. Uh, Dr. Schneider, Dr. McDaniel, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Glad to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here, Frank. And uh, also joining us in the round table is Angela McGuire. We had the recent Hurricane Katrina tragedy, and uh, a lot of us believe it is a wake-up call to address uh, the issues with energy use and global warming. Uh, But at the same time, we hear people like Patrick Michaels and Fox News challenging these um, well-established beliefs in the scientific community. Uh, What's the best way for citizens to meet these challenges and to address these issues in a rational manner? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Frank. Um, well, I think that if you look at Katrina, it's a, it's a wake-up call for a whole host of reasons. One, because there have been people that have been writing about this as an accident looking for a place to happen, not whether it was going to happen, but when it was going to happen. And when it uh, came about, for some reason, people didn't believe the seriousness of what was taking place. We had no organization for evacuating. A lot of folks were just economically in a position not to be able to evacuate. 
we had um, a situation that is far worse than uh, what we had on 9-11, and yet for some reason we were like deer in the road with uh, lights in our eyes and just didn't respond with the way we should have responded. And I don't know, Steve probably has a lot more he can say and fill on it and uh, talking about some of the um, issues he sees there. The New Orleans catastrophe was inevitable. It had been forecast many, many times, and in fact, the stories are starting to come out now about various city officials and state officials, engineers and others, who were warning we've got to build these levees higher. They're designed for a Category 3 hurricane. What if we had a 4 or a 5? Uh, and they were blown off by those people who were more interested in cutting taxes to the top-end rich Americans, and they aren't protecting the, uh, the, the bulk of the public. I would argue that New Orleans is a train wreck of homeland security. We've basically failed in homeland security because we have this irrational preoccupation with external enemies whose threat to us is relatively minor uh, compared to the kinds of threats that we have internally. Uh, I love to give a little talk, which I evolved out of anger once, listening to somebody from the National Security Agency who used to work for my former provost, Condoleezza Rice. And he was arguing that the single most important thing for government to do is to protect the American citizens against the, uh, the evil terrorist threat. So uh, we were arguing about a number of these issues. And finally, I got annoyed, and I gave a little slide, which I called, uh, with apologies to Jared, meaning Jared Diamond, whose famous book, Guns, Germs, and Steel was on the bestseller list, and rightly so, for a long time, and I called it uh, Guns, Cars, and Cigarettes. And what I asked was the inexcusable nature of 9-11, and I personally did not object to the U.S. clearing out the Taliban and getting rid of that kind of an element, although I personally object to Iraq, because I think that actually adds to our insecurity. Never mind my views, let's just go back to the numbers. So let's do the guns, the guns, cars, and cigarettes. So about 3,000 people died in 9-11. So in the United States alone, how long do we have to wait before we kill a 9-11's worth of people from gunshot wounds every year? Any guesses, um, Angela, Frank? Is it like two months or so? I would imagine it would be a very short period of time. I mean, three months? Very good. This is uh, not the average person on the street. Most people are kind of clueless. But if you think about it, oh, well, 10,000 people, you know, 3,000, that's, you know, like a quarter of a year, something of <clears> like that. So three months is a pretty good number. Now, how about cars, car crashes, automobile accidents? How long does it take in the United States for us to uh, achieve a 9-11 level of death? Well, we kill about 40,000 people a year. So it's, so it's like three weeks. So, yeah, do the Now, math. how about cigarettes, where you don't have direct evidence, but you have an overwhelming statistical evidence about uh, heart disease, uh, lung cancer, and so forth, and a couple hundred thousand people a year are, 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 are a couple of days. So we have three weeks, three months, and three days, and they think that they should hijack the entire apparatus of government to chase a relatively minor problem. And so people in the room, that was in the Council on Foreign Relations, said, well, why do you think they're doing that? I said, well, you're asking a climatologist to speculate on politics. I'll give you my speculation. Because it's very good politics to frighten people and to have an external enemy and maintain this constant war mentality in order to divert from the absolute lack of repairing the needed infrastructure and social development at home. I think it's a strategy. I think it's working, and it's starting to fail, and New Orleans is exposing it. Yeah, and there's a lot more that you can talk about this. I mean, you even look at issues like uh, uh, the, the growth of the human population. 
the fact that we in the United States have denied to uh, women in, in developing uh, countries the opportunity to have health care and the ability to decide when and how many children they want because we're um, on this particular issue that we, we think that we uh, do not want to support abortion. Nobody's in favor of abortion. Abortion's not a family planning method. But if you think about the consequences of the additional people that are being born because couples do not have the capacity to eliminate unintended pregnancies, and this leads to people being refugees, leads people to migration, you're in countries that are already poor, and now they have more people with fewer resources. This is a national security issue because people want to come to the United States, they want to have these things, and uh, even if they don't m migrate here, we are going to have to deal with these larger problems because people are going to be discontent, and this leads to more folks being interested in, in, in terrorist activities and so forth. So you can stretch this onto almost any topic you want to talk about um, that uh, we have to address uh, these concerns in a systemic way. This is a total system that we're dealing with, not just a particular event. Plus public health infrastructure is much worse in poor countries. So therefore public health is worth worse in poor countries. Therefore, when there's uh, in-migration to the United States, legal and illegal, people are bringing their microbial baggage along with them, adding to public health problems here. So the reaction uh, of the America Firsters, you know, and the Fortress America types is, well, we'll just simply set up a, you know, a, a, a checkpoint at the border, whereas the right reaction is to partner with these other countries in preventing the health crises over there so that, therefore, as those people leave, they don't carry with them the horrible conditions uh, that they have at home, conditions which we're now watching replicated in an American city uh, that had inappropriate planning and insufficient planning for a hurricane that was inevitable. But even that, if you, if you, if you look at this, uh, what happened at Katrina, it, this is, you can't say this is global climate change, but in fact, it's weather, and the weather is going to become more severe. It's very consistent with the fact of a warming planet, and I don't, I, and Steve will probably speak a lot more of the details there, but the warmer water in the Gulf of Mexico probably had something to do with it being a more intense storm, and we ha we've had more intense storms. The frequencies are increasing the amount of rainfall we have, and this is now related to, to uh, the changing climate. So we in the United States have said it's economically uh, unaffordable to deal with reducing our uh, heat trapping emissions. Is it really when, what's, what's the bill now uh, for Katrina? Is uh, $180 billion or something like this? And climbing. And climbing, so we're gonna have more of these disasters. You know the data better than I do, Steve. Maybe you can speak it's, on that. It's way too soon. To know. I want to come back to Frank's opening question when he said, well, how do you deal with the people uh, who say this isn't true? Mm -hmm. uh, well, first, yeah, or circumstantial. Uh, listen to the President of the United States. When you hear his press conference and when the storm first happened, he said, this is just a horrible, and he stopped and he said, natural, and he went on, disaster. Uh, in other words, there's absolutely no human culpability. Uh, either in terms of inadequate uh, preparation for the natural variability or, as Carl was saying, the fact that uh, we may have souped the hurricane up. Remember, we don't make hurricanes. Nature makes hurricanes. We don't make droughts. We don't make floods. But we can intensify the extreme events 
because the warm water is thermodynamically the driver behind hurricanes. So when you warm it up, all of the conditions being equal, which they're not going to be all the time, but once in a while they are, you're going to get more top-end storms, not necessarily more storms. So some element of this storm you can lay at the doorstep of the one degree Fahrenheit warming that's been brought about in the last century, most of which in the last couple of decades, uh, and it undoubtedly increased the intensity of the storm a little bit, whether it was 1% or 3 or 4, we'll never know, we'll fight. In other words, was it one foot on the storm surge or five that we're responsible for? You know, one foot, well, not much. Five might be the difference between it having gone over the levee and not. So why should we be making our footprint deeper and deeper and our impact on nature louder and louder without trying to slow it down? Makes no sense. It's not a sustainable philosophy. And unfortunately, the current administration, what I call the climate monkeys, hear no, see no, and speak no climate because it's inconvenient to their former buddies in the oil industry and the coal industry and who make the big cars, and they don't want to make cuts. How do we then uh, make people such as the Bush administration uh, wake up? Or maybe, maybe we shouldn't even be relying on them so much. There seems to be, for example, out of Hurricane Katrina, a huge grassroots effort. So people are, people are concerned. What do you suggest we do? Well, I don't know. With the, with the Bush administration, I, I'm not uh, very hopeful in that we can make them wake, wake up. I mean, I'm, I'm a biologist, and one of the things that's of great concern to me is the, the issue of uh, the teaching of evolution in, in our schools. And we, having a president and actually uh, a leader in the, in the Senate, Mr. Frisk, say that, yes, these, uh, we should teach creationism science or intelligent design, as people are now talking about it, in science classrooms equivalent to evolution and they, the students can decide. I mean, this is like teaching chem. Should we choose between chemistry and alchemy? Should we choose between physics and magic? I mean, the, the data is in. We know more about evolution than we do in terms of mechanism than we do about gravity. And the evidence supporting uh, evolution is as strong as that that supports gravity. Gravity is a, a, a law. It's a theory in science. It's not a hypothesis. Evolution is a law. It's the, it's the law of evolution. If we have our top leaders that are so ill-informed, so poorly educated, or for political reasons take those positions, I'm not sure that we have the kind of leadership that's going to help us deal with things that are true. There are things that are true. It's not all opinion. Well, if we want to play the blame game, there's some to go around everywhere. I'll start with us, with the scientists. Scientists uh, get promoted on the basis of discovering original ideas and overthrowing old doctrine. They don't get uh, promoted and, and famous by repeating what's well understood and well established. Unfortunately, when the world cares about what we do and they listen in with ears called journalists, and we jump right to the cutting edge and everybody fights, they think nobody knows anything. We're in constant contention, whereas in fact there's this large <laughs> body of shared information that nobody bothers to summarize. Then when we write a report from the National Research Council and we say, oh, with well, all the scientists except one or two strollers you know, who are funded by the oil industry, uh, agree that global warming is real, that humans are responsible for at least half of it. They say, that's not possible. All you ever do is fight. That's in our culture. Now let's go to the media. Next blame. Uh, an honest journalist covering political area correctly get the Democrat, get the Republican. It's absolutely right. It's called balance. But what happens in science? There aren't two sides. It's not the end of the world versus good for you. There's multiple positions. And what science does when it's working well 
is it winnows out the relative likelihood of each of these multiple positions. So if you dumb this down to end of the world and good for you and you put that out, the public is going to think, well, the scientists don't know. How can I know? So let's just wait and see. There are a lot of people very well paid to convey that false impression because otherwise if we had rules that would hurt their, their return on investment and they've got a president and especially a vice president who they've got in their back pocket on this issue and as a result they are climate monkeys and see no, hear no, and speak no climate. In the other place is public education. How much of public education is teach the test? Truth comes from the front of the room. Uh, you're in edu why are you in school? Well, to make plastic wheels for the economic engine. How about to learn how to be creative thinkers, to deconstruct a phony argument? Most of what we hear is garbage out there anyway. You have to learn how to see through it. That involves loving debate, enjoying catching error, but not, not in a gleeful way, but in a way that people enjoy the, the, the engagement and don't fall for garbage. Imagine a new dentist who comes in town and hangs up a shingle, painless dentistry, or the antique store, bargain antiques, or a democratic people's republic. You know, if it's in the title, it's because it ain't so. Like Fox News, fair and balanced, give me a break. If you put it in the title, it's a lie. And that's exactly <laughs> what they bamboozle people into thinking. So what we need to do is create a generation of literate people who are somewhat cynical, not, not um, mean, but cynical about stuff and learn to cut through nonsense arguments. And that means we have to make it safe for them to be skeptical and not just simply to take on faith and tradition that the, the president, the priests, and the parents are always right. Uh, another culprit, I think, is the fact that we've come to believe things deeply that are just not possible. And we live in uh, an era of growth and growth economies and growing populations. And if you just do simple math and, and the politician says, this is wonderful, we're going to grow our community by 7% every year. And if you do the simple math, that's doubling your community or whatever entity you're talking about in 10 years. Now, if you do it again, now you're four times larger than you were 20 years ago on a finite planet. This is not possible. So I think in many ways the truth is unaccessible to us because our beliefs are so strong that the truth would be just not uh, uh, digestible. So I, I don't know how we do that. I think this is the, the challenge that we all face in education, as educators, as journalists, to somehow come to grips with biophysical reality on a finite planet, and that, that's the challenge. And it has climate change, it has population, it has economics, uh, it's, it's all there, but can we get people to pay attention to it when they want to believe something else? For the climatologist amongst us, what, um, things, what are the main things that we um, need to do uh, in order to start reversing this uh, climate change? I'm an optimist, so show me what I need to do and I will do it. Okay, Angela, let's give you some optimism. In uh, 19, late 1980s, we had the Montreal Protocol that cut out 50% of ozone-depleting chemicals, chlorofluorocarbons, and then two years later, the London Extension that got rid of 90. Well, why did that happen? Well, that's the good news. The world was able to act when it saw its ozone layer disappearing. Why did we have to wait for the ozone to disappear before we actually did something? 
So the good news is we did something, the bad news is we had to be kicked in the teeth to do it. So how long do we have to wait and how many kicks in the teeth do we need? The, Euro, the European heat wave in 2003 killed over 30,000 people. Unimaginable, none of us could have imagined anything that bad from the worst heat wave in their recorded history. That Now we have the New Orleans event. How many of these things will it take to finally create an ozone hole where we can do things, we can act when we get our attention. The trouble is we're bamboozled by all this confusion out there and by, frankly, overt lies and distortions, and most people just don't know what to do. It was, I tied global warming to it at the edge. We didn't make the heat wave, we didn't make the hurricane, but we made them stronger. Whether we made them a little stronger or a lot stronger, we won't know until we have 50 years of data and look back retrospectively. We know we weren't zero and we know we weren't all of it. We were something in between. So when you're talking about you know, coin flip, 50% you know, chances of significant damages to the life support system of the Earth, which requires us to slow down our impact on the planet, it seems to me this is elementary planetary hygiene, uh, except it happens to conflict with people who manufacture sport utility vehicles and want to sell you coal. I wish we had more time, but it's really been an inspiration. I just want to thank you uh, for joining us today. Good. And thank you, Frank and Angela. Really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for your concern. I wish more journalists would do in-depth stuff instead of the 20-second uh, the sound bites of end of the world and good for you extremes, the two lowest probability outcomes. And we were just talking to Professor Carl McDaniel, author of Wisdom for a Little Planet, and Professor Steven Schneider, global climatologist. I would also like to thank Angela McGuire for her input and Gordon Fellow for arranging this meeting. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out why urine is yellow, so stay tuned. here with the answer to last week's question of the week. Why is pee yellow? Well, pee contains water and urine and some salts, but they're all clear. The yellow comes down from the breakdown of bilirubins from your bile, and that's why pee is yellow. All right then, Slim! Look smart! It's Sergeant Major General Colonel Slime Science! Oh, you better be looking smart, and now you better know what the critical angle is! Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? 